0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Daniel 11, verse 1, and we're going to be covering a lot of ground all the way to chapter 12, verse 2. And I entitled this The Final Battle because this describes the last war that ends human history. According to the Bible, history isn't cyclical. As other worldviews suggest, instead, the biblical view is that human history is linear, that it had a definite beginning, and it will have a definite end, and that it culminates in this final battle. Now, we should review some of the different predictions we've covered through the book of Daniel, a number of really remarkable predictions. For example, we saw that the Persians would overthrow Babylon— The book of Daniel also predicted the rise of Alexander the Great and one of his successors, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and his persecution of the Jewish people. Daniel also predicted the emergence of the Roman Empire hundreds of years before the Roman Empire existed. Also that the Messiah would appear in AD 33. We saw that last week in Daniel chapter 9. Also, the book of Daniel implies that the nation of Israel would be regathered thousands of years um, after uh, it had been destroyed, and then also the reemergence of a Rome-like empire. And so, as we saw, all of these things have been predicted, um, with maybe the exception of the reemergence of the Roman-like empire, maybe, maybe. Right, We argue that at least the conditions are there which are necessary for a Western European Union that could resemble this Rome-like empire described in the book of Daniel. So why don't we look at Daniel 11, verse 1 and 2, and we're going to look at the final prediction, which is this great world war that's going to break out that ends human history. Daniel 11, verse 1 and 2. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So the following 32 verses actually contain amazing Fulfilled prophecies. In fact, the uh, commentator John Walvert actually claims that there are 135 fulfilled prophecies in the first 35 verses of Daniel 11. And so that deserves careful examination on your own. We're going to skip down to verse 35. We read, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. So, uh, one of the things that we see in those intermediate verses that we skip, Daniel talks about the emergence of Antiochus Epiphanes and gives greater detail about his career. And he talks here about how Antiochus will refine and purge the Jewish nation. And this, of course, is a reference to Antiochus persecuting the Jewish people relentlessly through his reign and that this will continue throughout human history. We've seen this even in the modern day during World War II under the National Socialists. The Jewish people were persecuted and many millions died during the Holocaust. And so this happens to be part of God's plan, not that he's causing people to persecute the Jewish people, but that he allows evil and things like persecution to enter the lives of his people in order to refine and purify their character. You know, one of the things the Bible teaches is that he can take senseless tragedy, such as death, persecution, suffering... And he can actually use that for good in our lives and in the lives of many people uh, around us. Well, the following verses actually leap forward in time, starting in verse 36. And um, there are a number of reasons for this prophetic gap. We introduced this a couple weeks ago that in Daniel and really in prophetic material you find in the Old Testament, there are often these prophetic gaps And it's indicated by the context that the subject matter changes and the events seem to be talking about future time periods. For example, verse 35 says that these events pertain to the end time. So, obviously, Antiochus lived in the second century and yet, Daniel says that these events will take place until the end of time. So, Uh, What we're going to see in verse 36 is that really the events of what Daniel is describing in this prophecy actually jump thousands of years forward. Number two, the section prior to verse 35 looks backward, whereas these verses following verse 35 look forward. Also, if you look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, you know, when you read the Bible, you should take note that the chapter divisions are synthetic. They're not actually in the original. So Daniel 12 verse 1 actually is still connected to Daniel chapter 11. And the prophet says, At that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book of life will be rescued. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. So this must be talking about some future event that didn't take place in the second century. Number four, the king, which Daniel introduced to us in verse 40, attacks who he calls the king of the north. Whereas Daniel actually refers to Antiochus as the king of the north in chapter 11. So this individual, the king, must be somebody else. It's not referring to Antiochus. Number five, the subject seems to jump from the despicable person who clearly resembles Antiochus to then the king who seems to have a completely different career. And finally, the king doesn't fit Antiochus because Antiochus didn't reject every god and assume deity. That's one of the things that we're going to learn about this king. He actually goes into God's temple and claims to be God, blaspheming the temple. And yet Antiochus, when he entered the temple, he didn't claim to be God. He actually offered sacrifices to Zeus. So he believed in the Greek pantheon and worshiped the Greek gods. That would not fit this king. Okay, verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will uh, prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. So he will exalt and magnify himself above every God, even claiming to be God. Now, last week we studied Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, where Daniel gives this remarkable prediction of the 77th. And we looked at the first 69 sevenths which refer to the time when the restoring and rebuilding of Jerusalem begins all the way till the Messiah, the anointed one, comes. Daniel says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, so a total of 69 sevens. Now, we skip verse 26 and 27, and somebody actually raised that question. So what about the rest of this passage? Well, this actually pertains to this time period that Daniel 11, verse 36 talks about. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. So there seems to be sort of a, a jump a prophetic gap that exists right in the middle of verse 26. Uh, And we are told that this, again, spans from the time of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem all the way till the end of time. Now, we already uh, looked at the anointed one who will be cut off. This this refers to Jesus' death. And so... Once those 69 sevens have been completed, this last remaining seven is what Daniel talks about at the end of verse 26 and verse 27. He talks about this ruler who will come, who seems to be different than the anointed one, the Messiah. And we're told that he comes from the people who will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now we know from history that the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and completely devastated the temple. And that happened in AD 70 under Titus, the Roman emperor. So this ruler who will come has some linkage to the Roman empire, culturally or something like that. Verse 27, this ruler will confirm a covenant with many for one seven and in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So uh, notice that the people of the ruler destroy the temple in verse 26. And yet right here in verse 27, it says that the temple reappears. That this individual will actually commit what's called the abomination of desolation on the wing of the temple. So this must be pertaining to some future event because obviously the temple doesn't exist. Also, the ruler, uh, it seems like, corresponds to the little horn of Daniel 7 and the king in our passage. So we see again that the, the matrix that Daniel creates for us with his prophecies that all of these things are starting to line up. That this individual, this one world ruler who appears right before the end, that he has various different names, but his career and all of these passages are the same. We're told that he commits the abomination that causes desolation, which fits with what the king does in verse 38, that he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Revelation 13, verse 5 through 7 actually fills in some more, some more details. That this one world ruler was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. So this guy, this one world ruler, actually happens to make a covenant with the entire world. In other words, he solidifies his rule on earth as the one world ruler for seven years. And that in the middle of this seven-year period, which corresponds with the 42 months, 42 months equals three and a half years, right in the middle of that, he actually walks into God's temple and proclaims himself to be God. And then we're told in the remaining verses of Revelation 13 that he was allowed to wage war against God's people and conquer them, and he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and nation and and language. So apparently from this period, in the middle of this seven-year period where he reigns, he commits this act called the abomination of desolation, calling himself God. And at that point, he starts persecuting God's people until the very end. Again, we see other New Testament passages that correlate with this. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, that this individual, the one world ruler, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. So we get a really clear picture of this one world ruler that he will seduce the the nations of the world to follow after him and that right in the middle of that, he actually claims to be God. Okay, back to our passage. It says in verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all. So it says that he will show no regard for the desire for women. Now, uh, the New English translation renders this not even the God loved by women. Some people think that this passage should be translated this way. And they believe that what Daniel maybe was referring to was a cult in the second century where women were worshiping this God called Tammuz. And so that's one way to take it. Um, Or, you know, you could take it in a natural way that he had no desire for women. He's an unmarried person. And that would make total sense because one of the things that we learn about this one world ruler is that he actually becomes a counterfeit Christ. And so he resembles Christ in many ways, performing miraculous signs, claiming to be God, and that he probably will claim to be the Messiah. And that's what leads that lead many people to follow after him. Verse 38, But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, it says that he shows no regard for any gods, and yet now it says that he's honoring a god of fortresses. This obviously is a pretty confusing passage. I think my best explanation for this would be that maybe the god of fortresses may be a personification of the power to make war which really characterizes this guy's career or it may be that the god of fortresses or the god of war actually refers to god's enemy who we know animates this figure this one world ruler at the end of human history. Verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out the land for a price. Now, if you look at Antiochus Epiphanes' career, none of this matches. He wasn't parceling out his land or selling it for a price. He was looking to consolidate his land. So this must be talking about a different individual. Okay. Now, the remaining verses, verses 40 through chapter 12, verse 2, talk about a war that breaks out. And um, um, I want to try to reconstruct this last battle using claymation stop motion. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, So, anyway... Uh, we read in Daniel 11, verse 40, at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him. Now, we have to identify who are these kings, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Ezekiel 38, verse 1 through 5, gives us uh, some interesting possibilities. We're told at the, at the word of the Lord um, came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and drag you out and all your armies and horses and horsemen, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them. So, Um, Gog, we're told, is the prince of Rosh, and, um, you know, many commentators associate this with the peoples who are currently uh, living in Russia, and so that might be uh, these peoples living in that area. Magog, Meshach, and Tubal were sons of Japheth, mentioned in Genesis 10, verse 2, and these people were actually associated with the ancient Scythians. Um, And these people lived in the Black Sea area and the Caspian Sea. And so they lived in the northern area there. Um, And so it may be that these represent the northern confederacy, which may represent the kings of the north that Daniel referred to in Daniel 11 verse 40. Persia uh, refers to modern-day Iran. Cush, northern Africa and Ethiopia put would be a country adjacent to modern-day Iran. We're not exactly sure where that would be. And so that might represent the southern confederacy that Daniel refers to when he says the king of the south. We're told in verse 7 and 8, prepare yourself and all your companies that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword." Whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they're living securely, all of them. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and the peoples with you. So this must be referring to at least the second regathering of Israel, because there was never a time up until the modern day in which Israel lived securely in the land. And so it says that God actually gathers these people from all the nations into the land of Israel and that these these kings will actually swarm the land of Israel. So if we look at our map here of the Middle East, uh, it could be that the king of the north, Gog and Magog, along with the southern confederacy, Persia, Cush, and Put, attack this area. Now we're told in Daniel 11, verse 40, he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, referring to the king. And so uh, this individual who Revelation refers to as the beast comes to the aid of Israel and actually attacks these confederacies. Verse 41, he will also invade the, the beautiful land, which is an idiom for Israel. Then in Ezekiel 38, verse 21 and 22, God says, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will punish you, Gog and Magog, your armies with disease and bloodshed. I will send torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and burning sulfur. Okay, now you have to consider Ezekiel was an ancient man who was seeing this vision from God. And it's quite possible that when he was seeing these future events, that he really couldn't explain what he was seeing. So he was using perspectival language. In other words, he was using terms that would have been familiar to his audience to try to depict something that he had no knowledge of. And so these hailstones, fire, and burning sulfur could be a reference to modern military weaponry. I mean, think about the torrential rain. When have you ever heard of torrential rain directly killing people? Now, man, hear about that rain the other day? It's <laughs> devastating. Um, you know, what this could be talking about are mortars, maybe a guided missilery. You know, I remember um, during the Gulf War, the first one, Uh, Some of the images that were were coming on the TV screen um, that showed, you know, war for the first time with live images just blew me away. I mean, you know, you think about the sulfur, the burning sulfur, you know, this could describe buildings that are ablaze. Or, you know, you think about these hailstones um, and torrential rain, you know, this could describe these guided missiles or uh, artillery rockets that are being shot in the sky, Um, Then we're told in Daniel 11 verse 42 that he will extend his power over many countries and even Egypt will not escape. So once he deals with the king of the north and the south, he actually makes his way toward northern Africa. And we're told that he will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. So it might be that he is funding his military campaign by, by plundering the riches of Egypt. But we're told that rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And again, Revelation fills in a little bit more detail for us. Revelation 9, verse 14 through 16 says, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard the number. John's like... I didn't, I didn't hear a stutter. 200 million troops. Now, you have to put yourself in John the Apostle's shoes. He's living in 8090, and the population of the earth was much smaller back then than it is today. If you look at the world population, you know, it was pretty stable up until the modern day. Um, in about 81. There was maybe a, a couple hundred million people on earth. And then we see these dramatic jumps. In 1830, we hit our first billion. In 1930, we hit our second billion. In 1960, we hit our third billion. And on. And in our modern day, we are at nearly seven million or seven billion people. Uh, the 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 world population clock, which estimates the number of people living on earth as of 1 p.m. today, says that there are 7,589,538,202 people. And in the first century, you know, a 200 million person army would require drafting almost every man, woman, child, and elderly person on earth. And yet today, China China contains uh, 385 million men who are fit for military service between the ages of 16 to 49, according to the CIA World Factbook. Yeah, it's credible. Now, you know, you think about casualties of war and the thought that there's something, a war, that could wipe out a third of mankind It just seems really hard to imagine. To give you an idea, here are the Gaelic Wars. uh, This is when Julius Caesar attacked the Gaelic people in in Western Europe. This was around 58 to 50 BC. And there were about an estimated 1 million deaths, which constituted 0.4% of the world's population. So a really tiny percentage of the world population. The Lushan Rebellion in China, which took place around AD 755, claimed the lives of 33 to 36 million people, which constituted 14 to 15% of the population at that time. World War II, uh, you know, 1939 to 1945, claimed the lives of 60 to 72 million people, which only constituted to 3.1 percent of the world population. What John is talking about is a war that could actually take out more than 4 billion people. And you know, in our modern day, it's not too hard to imagine something like that happening with the technology we have. Revelation 16, verse 12 and 16 add. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on or the, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And they gathered them there to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now uh, Armageddon or Harmageddon is not Um It's not like a war. It's not a 1998 movie starring Bruce Willis. Um, It refers to an area in northern Israel, uh, otherwise known as the Jezreel Valley. Har actually means mountain. So this means the mountain of Megiddo, but it's not actually a natural mountain. It's a tell, which means that it's a raised area that... uh, Formed over the years when people would live in a certain place and then somebody in, would invade that land, decimate the city, and then newcomers would come in and rebuild the city. And so over time, this area would, would actually grow. And uh Har-Megiddo has this plain, this valley nearby, where many battles have taken place. Here's a picture of it. Um... From my knowledge, uh, there are over 30 battles that have taken place in this plain. It's triangular in shape, it's about 25 miles long, and some famous generals and kings, such as uh, the Roman Emperor Vespasian, um, Pharaoh Shishak from Egypt, as well as Napoleon, fought in this plain. Napoleon Bonaparte says, All the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground of the whole earth. And so apparently this final battle takes place center stage here at Armageddon. Then in verse 44, the rumors from the east and the north will disturb the the king. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. So he hears these rumors and he, he marshals all of his forces back to the eastern front. As these invaders, the kings of the east, come. Then we're told in verse 45, he pitches his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful Holy Mountain. Which is a reference to Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And in verse 45, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And so uh, he marshals all of his forces north and this final battle at Armageddon takes place against the kings of the east. Now, turning back to Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So this word distress, in Hebrew, is the word tsara, And in Greek, it's the word thlipsis. And Jesus, in his famous Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, verse 21 and 22 says, for there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and and never will be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect days, those days will be shortened. Um, the word there, uh, distress, great distress, is the same Greek word uh, used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, glipsis. And so uh, Matthew was connecting this event that Jesus was talking about, this future world event, to what we read here in Daniel 12, verse 1. Zechariah 14.12 aids us a little bit in our understanding. It says their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. I mean, can you imagine anything that could cause this kind of destruction in the ancient world? And yet, you know, when you think about it today, it's not really that difficult to imagine something like this happening. In 1961, um, the Russians actually... Um, tested the Tsar Bomba, which is the largest man-made explosion in history. And they actually took videos of this. Um, Alan Roebach says, a conflict between India and Pakistan in which 100 nuclear bombs were dropped on cities and industrial areas, which only equals about 0.04% of the total warheads on Earth, would produce enough smoke to cripple global agriculture. Here's that video of uh, the Tsar Bomba. actually claim that the uh, mushroom cloud from this bomb they could they could see it a hundred miles away and um, <clears throat> you know it, it's not hard to imagine um, a full scale nuclear war breaking out I mean we live at a time where North Korea threatens uh, the United States and South Korea that they are going to uh, They're going to fire a nuclear strike. Um, You think about Iran. They promised that they are going to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Well, we're told at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And he says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. At that time, God is going to come in and he's going to say, that's enough. Because he knows that if he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't stop things, that we would destroy ourselves. And that's really the pattern that God has for us throughout human history. That he lets us experience the consequences of our rebellion against him the destruction that comes from that, the evil that comes from that, but at a certain point, he has to save us from ourselves. And that's exactly what he does at the end. And we're told that at the very end, God will open up the book of life in which people's names are written who have decided to place their trust in Christ and that those will experience salvation. But those who have rejected Christ who've rejected God's offer of forgiveness to everlasting destruction. So let's draw a few points of application. I think the first thing is, there is such a thing as a healthy fear of the Lord. Um, A few weeks ago, I was talking to one of my friends who happens to be in my home church, and she was talking about how The first time she sat through a series of teachings like this about end times prophecy, she said that her heart was nearly beating out of her chest. She was so fearful. You might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, this kind of freaks me out. And you know what? To some extent, that's the point. You know, God wants to tell us about future events in order to prepare us, but also... To help us wake up. To see that, you know, our lives are headed in a certain direction. That this world is headed in a certain direction. And that we need to think about that. What are we going to do about it? There's still time to place your trust in God. Jesus promises this in John 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so Jesus says, he says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I've prepared a place for you. Trust in me. The Bible teaches that if we decide to place our personal trust in Christ and what he has done and experience his forgiveness, he promises that he will etch our name in the book of life. And that one day when this world ends, when human history ends, that God says that we will experience eternal salvation. But don't wait until it's too late. God says that um, at our death, we lose our chance. When Christ returns, we lose our chance. And so, You know, maybe you're here tonight and you've been sitting through a few of these teachings. Maybe you've been talking to friends about Christ. And maybe you're right on the verge of trusting in Christ. I think there's a sense of urgency to that decision. Place your trust in him now. Don't wait. Third, if God has already fulfilled many of his predictions in Daniel, it suggests that these future predictions will also come to pass. It gives us confidence that what he says about future events will happen. And so we should eagerly await Jesus' coming, anticipating it, living as though he is going to come back. All right. Why don't we just uh, wrap up our time here with some prayer. God, thinking about some of these uh, events pertaining to the end of human history kind of freaked me out a little bit, honestly. And, um... Thanks that you're sovereign. Thanks that uh, we have the promise of eternal salvation as a result of what Christ has done. I pray, Lord, especially for those of us here tonight who uh, don't know you personally, who might be feeling the same way, pretty freaked out, not only by this, uh, this material, but also just by all the different world events that uh, cause us turmoil I pray that uh, we would have an opening of the eyes and see that this is uh, you warning us that we need to place our trust in you before it's too late. And uh, I pray that anybody who senses that in their hearts, that they would would entrust themselves to you. We thank you for anyone who did that. In Jesus' name, amen.